Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Started in 1938, the Harvard Study of Adult Development represents the longest study on happiness ever conducted. It set out to follow a group of men through every stage of their lives, from youth to old age, to discover what factors lead people to flourish. Here to share some of the insights that have been gleaned from the Harvard Study of Adult Development is Dr. Robert Waldinger, the current director of the project and the co-author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Today on the show, Robert explains how the study has affirmed the absolute primacy of relationships and happiness, and how to develop the social fitness to make and enrich those vital connections. We discuss what the happily married couples in the study did differently, and why happiness in marriage tends to follow a U-shaped curve, which hits its low point in midlife. We talk about how the way you were raised helps set a trajectory for your life, but how it's possible to overcome a rough upbringing to become a transitional character in your family. We also discuss the role that friends and work played in the happiness of the men who participated in the study. We end our conversation with what folks in every stage of development, whether youth, midlife, or older age, should focus on to live a flourishing life. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is happiness. Robert Waldinger, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you are the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And this is a study on human happiness flourishing that's been going on since 1938. And you recently co-authored a book with Mark Schultz about what you and other researchers have discovered in this 85-year-old study about human happiness. Before we get into the book... Let's talk about the study itself. When it started, what was the aim of the study and you know, who were the individuals being studied? Just kind of give us a big picture overview of this Harvard study of adult development. Sure. So it was actually two studies that didn't even know about each other when it started. One study was at Harvard University Student Health Service. It was a study of undergraduates, sophomores, from the classes of 1939 to 1942, their, their deans thought they were fine, upstanding young men, and they wanted to do a study of young adulthood and normal development. So, of course, you study all white guys from Harvard. It's totally politically incorrect now, but at that point, that's what they wanted to study. And then the other study was started by a Harvard Law School professor, Sheldon Gluck, and his wife, Eleanor Gluck who was a social worker, they were interested in juvenile delinquency and particularly why some kids born into really underprivileged, impoverished, troubled families, why those kids managed to stay on good developmental paths, not get into trouble, but really develop into you know, upstanding young guys. And so both of those studies then were combined by my predecessor, so that they're very contrasting groups, like a very privileged group and a very underprivileged group. And we followed them all for their whole lives. We brought in their wives at one point when I started with the study 20 years ago. And then we reached out to all their children, more than half of whom are women. Um, so now we've studied over 2,000 people in 724 families. 
And so this is called a longitudinal study where you take somebody or a group of people and you study them, not just for a moment in their life, but across the entire life. Because I think this is interesting. What are the benefits of doing a longitudinal study like this? What insights can you get that you can't get when you do a study, when you just look at a person at a particular moment in their life? Right. That's such an important question. And most research is done by just looking at particular moments. So the best way I can give you an example is through a joke. So, you know, often we take snapshots, like if we were to do a study of people in their 20s, and then also some people in their 40s and in their 80s, you know, we take snapshots at different ages. But there's a senator from Florida named Claude Pepper, who once said, when I look at my state of Florida, and particularly South Florida, I would have to believe that you are born Cuban and you die Jewish. That the issue is that we tend, if we just take snapshots at different points of life, to make connections that aren't real, that we think we know how life proceeds, but it's not often the case. So by following the same people throughout their entire lives, we really can see whole lives play out. And we've done that with thousands of people now. So in this study, so you're they're researching or studying Harvard sophomores, and they've been following them their entire life. Then this group of underprivileged kids, these poor kids. What yep. kind of questions were the researchers asking uh, these these individuals throughout their life? They were asking questions about the big domains of life, so mental health, physical health, work, satisfaction. Did you get promoted? Did you get fired? How much do you like your work? Relationships, all kinds of relationships, not just romantic partnerships, but friendships and and casual relationships in the community. So we asked all those questions. And of course, we relied a lot on their reports to us, their questionnaire self-reports. But we also then began to bring in other sources of information. We began to videotape them talking with their partners we began to draw blood for DNA. And and that's so cool because if you think about it, DNA wasn't even imagined in 1938. And when I came on in the 2000s, we started measuring DNA. We bring them into our lab and we stress them out and see how quickly they recover. And all of these are different windows on human thriving. So after decades of looking at the lives of these men and even the lives of of their children, the study has gone on to a second generation. What's the most important thing that you and, and the researchers involved in the study have learned? Well, we took away two big things. One won't surprise you. It's that taking care of your health really matters. You know, exercising regularly, not smoking, not abusing alcohol or drugs, eating right, all that stuff matters hugely for your happiness, for your health, for your longevity. But the surprise for us was that the people who stayed healthy the longest, who were the happiest, and who lived the longest were the people who had the best connections, the warmest connections with other people as they went through their lives. The surprise was, you know, okay, it stands to reason that if you have good relationships, you'd be happier. But how could it predict that you would be less likely to get coronary artery disease or type 2 diabetes. Like, how could that possibly happen? And that's what we began to study. Many other research groups have found the same thing. So we have a lot of confidence in these findings. They're very strong. Well, and the point you make is that what's nice about this, the, the study is that you have two groups that come from different social strata. So you have the Harvard guys, and then you have the kids who were poor. And what you found is that where you started off in life didn't necessarily correlate with how you would end up later on in life, if you're flourishing in life. There were men who were great at the beginning of their life, and then they died just unhappy, unhealthy, et cetera. And then there were you know, boys who were poor and destitute, but they grew up into flourishing human beings. Exactly. Exactly. And we found that it wasn't much to do with wealth. It wasn't much to do with achievement and certainly not fame, even though everybody feels like they want those things, that it was about 
taking care of themselves and their families and about the strength of their connections, that those were the things that really mattered. So you mentioned the strength of relationships in a person's life contributed to their physical health. They're less likely to get type 2 diabetes, coronary disease. Did the satisfaction or the strength of relationships correlate to other life outcomes like careers or things like that? Absolutely. So what we know from our study and other studies is that if you are good with people, if you have good people skills and you prioritize good relationships, you do better at your work. You are occupationally more successful compared with other people who may be brilliant, but aren't so good with other people. So this this prioritizing of relationships really matters in your work life, not just in your home life. Yeah, I, I think I've seen, looking at the study, there's things like men with at least one good relationship with a sibling growing up made $51,000 more per year than men who had poor relationships with their siblings or no siblings at all. I think another one saw was men with warm mothers took home $87,000 more than those men whose mothers were uncaring. But I think the point you make throughout the book is that even if you had a bad childhood, doesn't mean you're destined to not make as much money. But generally, if you look at the the outcomes of individuals, you see those correlations. Well, you do. That that childhood experience really matters, but there's a lot of room for correction, course correction. So very often, people who find a good partner can really change what they expect in relationships. So let's say you grew up in a really difficult family where you couldn't trust people or people were mean and emotionally abusive or even physically abusive. If you're able to find a partner, if you're able to find friends who are reliable, who are kind, who are stable, often that goes a long way to correcting your own expectations about life. So social relationships are the most important thing. It's going to correlate to you having a flourishing life in all aspects of your life. And this is not to say that being born into poverty or wealth is going to not have an influence. It will, but the relationships, the power of those warm relationships are going to, can overcome those influences. So one of the things that you and your colleague have developed with this understanding from the study that relationships, the power of relationships is the thing that allows us to flourish in life. You develop this idea of social fitness. And I really like this idea of thinking of our social life in terms of fitness. How would you describe social fitness? Like what makes it up and how do you measure social fitness? Yeah. Well, what we did was we, we coined that phrase just as a way to be analogous to physical fitness. Because with physical fitness, if you think about it, you know, if you exercise today, you don't come back home and say, gee, I'm done. I don't ever have to do that again. We, we know that physical fitness is a lifelong practice. And similarly, what we find is that with our relationships, there is a kind of social fitness. There's a practice that, you know, when I was in my 20s, I used to think that my good friends were always going to be my friends, you know, from from school, from college. Now, they were just there. No need to worry about them. But it turns out when we watch friendships over time that many really good relationships can just wither away and die because of neglect, not because there's anything wrong in the relationships. And so what we've learned is that the people who are the best at maintaining social connections are active. They they make it a practice. And so what I mean by that is they take care to reach out to somebody, to make sure they have regular contact, to connect when it's been too long and they want to make sure that they catch up with the people who they want to really keep in their lives. You know, I'll tell you, for example, that my uh, <laughs> my co-author, Mark Schultz, and I became buddies, uh, became friends when we were apprentices in somebody's research lab, like 30 years ago. Well, he since moved to Pennsylvania, where he's a psychology professor, but we have a phone call every Friday noon And we talk about, yes, we talk about our research and our writing, but we talk about our kids and our wives and our, you know, our personal lives. That's hugely important in maintaining a vibrant friendship that otherwise I'm sure would have just withered away. And the other reason I like this idea of social fitness, I think this could be very appealing to men who often think of 
not always, but I think they often think that social skills are just something you either have or you don't. But this idea of social fitness is no, you can act, it's like getting stronger or getting better at endurance. It's a skill that you can develop with training and practice. And I think that can be appealing. Yeah. And there's some ways you can do it. So first is to be active, as I was saying, but another way is simply to be curious about another person. So if you say, well, I don't know how to talk to people, all you have to do is be curious. So let's say at work, you know, you see somebody who's got something interesting they're displaying on their desk, like a little object or a photo, just ask them about it. People love to talk about themselves. Or if you know that somebody has a particular hobby, you know, ask them. If somebody plays fantasy football, just ask them about it. What's it like? What do they do? It could be anything. That what we find is that if we bring curiosity to our encounters with other people, conversations get going pretty easily. Yeah, I think you broke down social fitness. This is how I interpreted it. So correct me if I'm wrong. There's two key components. The one you're talking about now is attending, right? Making a a focus on attending to the people that are in your life and then time spent. And I like this idea of this attending to them. So you talked about how you can attend more to people or pay more attention to people, ask questions, be curious, and anything else that you found from the study that the men who really thrived with their social life, what else do they do to pay more attention to the people around them? Sure. Well, to spend some time on that idea of attending, on attention, one of the things we're worried about a lot now is this problem that we're all giving each other partial attention a lot of the times so that even when we're together in the same room, we're often on our screens and maybe half paying attention to each other or not paying attention to each other at all. Think about the last time you saw people in a restaurant where everybody was sitting at a table, presumably friends or family, and everybody was on their phone, not even looking at each other. So, One of the things we want people to think about is being very intentional to give each other full attention. One of my Zen teachers has this famous quote that I love. He said, attention is the most basic form of love. And what he means by that is attention, our full undivided attention is probably the greatest gift we have to give to somebody else. And it's It's not that hard to do. You just have to really pay attention to it. You have to be mindful and intentional and say, okay, I'm going to put down my phone. I'm going to put away my screen. I'm going to look at this person and give them my full attention. So yeah, I think one question you propose that people ask themselves every day to increase the amount of attention they give the people in their lives is, what action could I take today to give attention and appreciation to someone who deserves it? So think about that and then set a goal to attend to that person. Yeah. And then notice how it feels because what you'll find is that it actually feels good to do that, that when you appreciate somebody, first of all, you get a lot of good stuff back usually, but also it just feels good to do it. Okay. Social fitness, one part is the attending part. The other part is time. Just as your physical fitness, if you want to get more fit, Physically, the more time you spend exercising, the more fit you're going to get. I imagine the same is the same with social fitness. The more time you engage in social activities, the fitter you're going to get. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we learn things when we do that. We get better at it. It's like practicing a sport. It's like practicing anything. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And you overcome some of the awkwardness. Like a lot of us are worried that, oh, if I strike up this conversation with the guy who gives me my coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, I'm, you know, it's going to be awkward. Well, the more you do it, the less awkward it becomes. So it's like practicing any skill. Just keep trying. Were there any insights from the study that suggest how much time we should spend with family and friends? There's no formula that one size doesn't really fit all people. So what we know is that all of us are on some kind of spectrum from being really shy to being really outgoing. And there's nothing abnormal about either end of the spectrum. It's fine to be shy. But what that means is that if I'm a shy person, that means being around a lot of people can be exhausting and I need more alone time. 
If I'm an extroverted person, then I want parties a lot. I want to be around a lot of people. So it's up to each of us to kind of pay attention to ourselves and say, okay, what works for me? Is it a few close people or is it a lot of people in my life? You also found a research that participants who not only socialized with their friends and family, but also socialized with strangers, that affected their social fitness, correct? Absolutely. That when we connect with strangers, so let's say the person who delivers our mail, the cashier at the grocery store, if we connect and exchange some pleasant conversation, we get little hits of well-being. And we give other people little hits of well-being. It's like just our recognition of, hey, I see you. I I like uh, saying hello to you. And those little interactions turn out to contribute every day to our feeling better about ourselves and to our health. Okay, so social fitness, spend more time with people we care about, spend more time socializing. And again, you said there's with the caveat, everyone's different. Sometimes you need more of that, sometimes you need less. But then also when you are spending the time, make sure you are actually paying attention to those people. One of the interesting things about this study is that again, it's longitudinal. So you've seen from when these individuals were in college, from boyhood, all the way into their eighties, nineties. So you've seen them date, get married divorce, have kids, face a lot of challenges in a relationship. What did you learn about what these participants did who thrived with their relationships and in life? How did they handle those challenges that will inevitably come up in any relationship? Yeah, they didn't hide from the challenges. So the temptation can be, you know, if I'm having a disagreement with somebody, let me just sweep it under the rug. Let me just turn the other way. Let me just avoid that person. It turns out that the people who, who thrive are the people who work out disagreements, that actually there are always going to be disagreements in any relationship, no matter how good it is. And the challenge is to work out those disagreements in a way that helps everybody feel stronger and better, not so that one person wins and the other loses, but that both people feel like they came to some understanding and they're able to move ahead with the relationship. And usually what happens is when you work out disagreements, the relationships get stronger. So turn towards the adversity instead of withdrawing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, if you face challenges in your relationship, turn towards it. Do so again, I think bringing that curiosity, if you see a disagreement, figure out why the person you're disagreeing with sees things the way they do and try to really control and harness those emotions towards positive, proactive ends. Let's talk about marriage. That's a big part of life. What did you learn about marriage from studying the men in this study? We learned that it changes, that, you know, you know, we pick a partner, right? And we say, till death do us part or not. You know, we don't necessarily get married, but we have a partner. And And what we don't expect is that we and our partner are going to change. But of course we do. We're always changing. And so one of the things we notice is that the people who have the best and the most stable relationships are the people who accept that they change, that their partner changes, and that the relationship is going to morph and change as it goes through time. That that's not a problem at all that that's to be expected. And if we give each other room to change, and that's a way of doing what we call growing together instead of growing apart. So the people who were best at, you know, learning new dance steps with their partner, if you will, were the people who had the most satisfying relationships that lasted, that met the test of time. And I imagine the people who didn't have that flexibility usually end up in acrimony or divorce. Exactly. Exactly. Why can't you be the person you were 20 years ago? Well, nobody is. Yeah. I mean, anything else that you found just sort of the day-to-day that these individuals that had a thriving marriage they did to, to strengthen their marriage? Yes. They caught each other being good. You know, we often catch each other being bad, doing the wrong thing, and we call them out. But really, if we catch each other being good, doing the thing we appreciate and name it, it goes such a long way to, first of all, 
reinforcing the behavior, getting the other person to do it again. Gee, you like that? I'll do it again. So we can help each other learn how to please each other. And so what I would say is that the people who were best at this were the people who kept appreciating their partner for the things that they genuinely valued. Well, here's a tip from my own life. So listeners of the podcast have probably heard me talk about this before. We actually had a, we did a whole podcast about this, this idea of a marriage meeting, a weekly marriage meeting. My wife Mm. and I have been doing it for years and we start off the meeting with appreciation. And so you just, you both, we each take turns just showing, sharing how we appreciated what the other did during uh, the week. So it's the mundane stuff, just, Hey, thanks for picking up the kids to, you know, the more meaningful things as well. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. And that's, you know, you start with appreciation and actually that's a good way to start lots of encounters, but especially with your partner. Wow. Such a good thing. And then you were able to move on to talk about the things that you'd like to maybe be different. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So we talk about our to do's. So we talk about what stuff that, that we have to do to get, just to manage the household, what needs to be fixed, cleaned, where the kids need to be. And then we talk about plan for good times. So we plan for good times individually. So if there's something I wanted to do, I want to go and hang with my friend on Thursday night. Uh, are you available to you know make sure the kids are babies? You know, someone's watching the kids. Oh yeah, that'd be yeah. great. Same thing. We plan good times as a couple or as a family. I love that. And then yeah. we end it with big issues. So it could be issues with the kids, concerns in the relationship. You talk about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is fantastic because the other thing we know is that it's easy for couples to just become a tag team raising kids. And, you know, where you, you do this and I'll do that. And then we stop paying attention to the romance. We stop paying attention to the fun parts. And so what you and your wife are doing is actively remembering to plan some fun and plan, you know, planning fun individually and planning fun as a couple and planning fun as a family. Because those fun times are the glue that holds every relationship together. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store, and they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. 
By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best, become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Well, another thing you found day to day that the participants in the study who had flourishing marriages did was just physical touch, like a frequent daily physical touch, hugs, hand holding, et cetera. They did that from once they got married till, you know, their 80s and 90s. They didn't stop doing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because physical touch literally calms us down. It literally relieves stress. And it certainly gives us hits of well-being. You know, when somebody takes your hand, when somebody puts an arm around you, gives you a little peck on the cheek, you know, it makes a big difference. And we can see it. We can see in the laboratory when somebody's about to have a stressful medical test, if they can hold the hand of someone they trust, they are hugely calmer. And in fact, they feel less pain if the procedure is painful. And so we know that this stuff really works. Another thing you found with this longitudinal study is that relationships, we mentioned relationships change over time. And one thing that they follow is this, this sort of U-shaped curve of happiness. We actually had an economist on the podcast to talk about this idea that generally people follow this U-shaped curve of happiness through their life. They, in their 20s, they're really happy. And then as you get down to your 40s, your happiness reaches its lowest point. And then after that, it starts going up. And the same thing happens in relationships. Marital satisfaction is high in the beginning. And then it sort of follows this U-shaped curve of happiness where you're in your 40s, 50s, you're like, ah, oh, this is my our relationship's not the best. But then 60s, 70s, 80s, it's the best it's ever, ever been. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's such a surprise because we think, oh, being old, ooh, I don't want to do that. You know, and that looks depressing. Huh. But older people get happier. And this U-shaped curve keeps coming up, you know, in study after study. A lot of it is because midlife is hard right? Midlife is often the time when we have the most pressure, most career pressure, the most pressure to take care of kids if we're raising kids, often pressure to take care of aging parents or disabled relatives. And so often we, we talk about the sandwich generation, the, the middle-aged person who's got so many responsibilities on so many fronts. It's easier when you're a young adult and it's easier when you're older and maybe the kids are launched, maybe you're no longer taking care of elderly parents. So there are a lot of reasons why this dip in happiness occurs in midlife. Now, it doesn't occur for absolutely everybody. These are big averages when we look at thousands of people, but it's pretty reliable. Let's talk about, we've sort of glanced on this, but a participant's family of origin how did that influence what their own family was like in adulthood? 
What we've seen is that if you have warm relationships with your parents, you're much more likely to have warm relationships as you get older. And we found that there was a connection even across 60 years that people who had warmer connections with parents in childhood had warmer relationships with romantic partners in their 70s. And that kind of connection is really hard to find across so many years. Well, what about people who grew up in a home that wasn't so loving, a broken home? Did they often carry those negative familial patterns into their their adult family? Many people do. It's also possible to have other good relationships that help a lot. So for example, you could have a relationship with an uncle or an aunt. You could have a great relationship with an older sibling, with a coach, with a teacher, somebody who you can rely on, somebody, if it's an adult, who's just crazy about you and mentors you and takes care of you. If you have that, that goes a long way toward compensating for some of the bad times we can have with parents. Well, there's this idea from a uh, family scholar that I've read, uh, Carl Fred Broderick, and he called this idea, say, if you grew up in a family that was not good, it was a bad, a broken family, you don't have to carry that on. You can become what he calls a, a, a transitional character. And it's, yeah. and it's a person, he calls it, it's a person who in a single generation changes the entire course of a lineage. And that can happen. I mean, and you, you highlight people who did that. They came from a broken home, but then through, you know, someone they met or just even just will, they, they changed that for themselves and their, their family. Exactly. Exactly. And I love that concept of being a transitional figure where you interrupt a lineage where you don't want to pay something forward that was unfortunately given to you, that you want to do it differently. And many people do that. You know, actually being a parent, a lot of parents are intentional about doing it differently because there were some things in their childhoods that were hurtful, that were neglectful, and they don't want to inflict that on their children going forward. And that can be a source of healing for the parent. You know, it can be a hugely healing thing to be able to do for your kids what wasn't done for you. And it was interesting too, you also highlight people who they try to be that transitional character in their family for their own kids. But by doing that, they actually were able to heal the rifts with their parents or siblings from their family of origin. They can, because sometimes, you know, grandparents can learn from parents about how the parents are, are taking care of their kids. You know, grandparents can say, oh, wow. You know, in fact, actually my own father, who was a very good man, uh, didn't know what to do with young kids. And so he didn't really spend much time with me and my brother when we were little. But when he saw me being a father and spending an awful lot of time taking care of my first son when he was a baby, my dad got really curious and interested and said, gee, I, I wish I had done more of that when when I was a parent of young kids. The uh, Did the flourishing participants in the study, do they stay connected with their family of origin more than participants who didn't fare as well in life? You know, it depends. There were some people who put distance between themselves and their families because the families were hurtful, because the relationships were more toxic. And those people found that they survived better and they thrived more when they put distance between themselves and their families of origin. There were other people who stayed quite close, and that was an enormous source of support as they went through all kinds of challenges as young adults and middle-aged adults. So I would say that if the families of origin were good, nurturing families, staying close was an enormous source of support. So I think the big takeaway from that aspect of the study is that if you came from a family that wasn't great, you don't, it, you're not doomed to repeat that. History is not doomed to repeat itself. Exactly. Exactly. Childhood is not destiny. <laughs> well, that's, is genetics destiny? So you've, you talked about how you've brought in DNA studies and there's a lot of talk about how, well, a lot of problems in people's life, they're determined by genetics. You were able to see this uh, like firsthand. What influence have you found that genetics has had in the outcomes of individuals' lives? 
Actually, there's another researcher who's done some work on this, a psychologist named Sonia Lubomirsky, and she's done some estimates, like how much of our happiness is under our control. And what she finds from looking at a lot of studies is that about 50% of our well-being is genetically determined, that we're all born with a certain temperament, a certain happiness set point that is pretty stable throughout our lives. But then about an extra 10% is our current life circumstance. And then the remaining 40%, she estimates, is under our control. So she says about 40% of our happiness, our well-being, is malleable. We can do something about it. And that's a big percentage. Let's talk about friends. What role did friends play in the lives of the men in the study? It varied. Some men turned around in midlife and said, I don't have any friends. And they really felt quite isolated. Some of them had spouses who made their social lives for them, and that worked okay. Some some of our original study participants, our men, had very good friendships, friendships that were long-lasting, also some friendships that they made for the first time in midlife or in late life. People who they they never thought they'd become friends with became friends when they were in their 70s and 80s. So it varied a lot. The message from all of that was that it is never too late to find friends, never too late. And we have stories in our book about that, you know, life stories where people who thought that it was too late for them, they were never going to have good friendships, suddenly found their friendships late in life. Did you all find any, like, was there a specific number of friends someone needed to have a flourishing life or did it vary? It varies a lot. And again, it's that continuum. Some of us are shy and it means that maybe we just need one or two really good friends in our lives. Some of us are extroverted and we might want lots of friends. So it's a very personal matter to check out for yourself. Like what what works for me? And then to try to make that happen for yourself. What we do know is that everybody needs somebody. Everybody needs at least one solid relationship. We At one point, we asked our original participants, we said, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? List everybody you could call. Some people could list, you know, quite a number of people who they could go to. Some people couldn't list anybody. We think that Each person needs at least one person in their life who's their go-to person, who would have their back if they really needed help. And one thing you you found is that the people who maintained or kept growing friendships throughout their life, what they did, one thing they did was really powerful was they thought about their social routines and then changed it up so that it allowed them to make more friends. So take a look at your life. Like, what am I doing that's preventing me from making friends? And, And then what can I do to increase the likelihood that I'll make a new friend. Yes. And one of the things we find is that if you think about what you enjoy or what you care about, so what are are the things you love to do or what are the causes you care a lot about, do those things with other people. So volunteer for a gardening club or a biking group or a bowling league, anything, something you love to do. Because one of the things we find is that If you put yourself in groups of people who share interests, first, it gives you an immediate topic of conversation, something to talk about, and you go back again and again, and you're with those same people, you're more likely to strike up conversations, to eventually have deeper conversations with a few people, and eventually build some deeper relationships. And in this idea that it's never too late for you to make new friends, you talk about, this is a great example, a guy named Andrew that was part of the study. And he was in a not great marriage. His wife was really critical of him and she was very averse to social situations. They kind of, they kept to themselves. And uh, he was miserable. He said that at age 45, he attempted suicide. And then uh, 20 years later at 65, he was thinking about it again. And then uh, at 67, he retired. He was forced to retire because uh, he couldn't see anymore. And then he got divorced. And he was even lonelier because he divorced his wife, even though the marriage wasn't great. But he decided to do something. He's like, I'm, I'm lonely. 
I need to make friends. And so what he did, he changed his social routine and he joined a health club, fitness club, went there every day, started making friends. This guy's really social. And then uh, says a couple years later when they did the study on him, they asked if he ever felt lonely. Before he said yes, often. And uh, recently he said, no, I never feel, I never feel, uh, and this was in 2010. He says he never feels lonely and he gets people visiting him at his house. He's made friends. So it took a while, but it is possible to change. Exactly. And he's a perfect example of how change happens, even when we're sure it's not going to. He just, you know, he made an effort and he did something that he wanted to do anyway, which is he wanted to join a gym. He wanted to take care of his health. And it had this wonderful side benefit that turned out to be the main event for him. What role did work play in the happiness of the participants of the study? It played a big role. First, on the downside, many people, when we asked them to look back on their lives and we said, what's your biggest regret? Many of them said, I wish I hadn't spent so much time at work. I wish I had spent more time with the people who mattered to me. But in addition, the people who were happiest at work were the people who made friends at work, who had important relationships at work. It gave them a reason to go to work every day. It gave them people to show up for. And what we find is that that's true when they study millions of workers, that if you have a friend at work, someone you can talk to about personal matters, it makes an enormous difference in how much you like the job, whether you're a good performer at that job, and whether you're more likely to change jobs. You're more likely to stay put if you have friends who you want to show up for at work. So I guess the big insight there is pick a job where you enjoy being around the people at work. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about what you've all learned from the study. We talked about how relationships are, the, that's, the, that's the most important thing in life. It correlates to higher health, higher income, higher happiness. But then to increase those relationships, we got to exercise our social fitness. We do that by you know spending more time with people we, we care about or even strangers. And then really when we're spending that time attending to them, then we talked about different ways uh, we can exercise our social fitness within our marriage, our friends at work. Again, this study is longitudinal, so you've been able to see these men at different points in their life, young adulthood, midlife, elderhood. Let's say someone who's listening to this podcast, they're in that early part of adulthood. They're in their 20s, maybe early 30s. What do you think is like the one thing that these individuals should focus on to really you know, lay a foundation for a flourishing life? Basically, focus on your relationships, and they don't have to be a choice between relationships and work or relationships and family. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Focus on your relationships wherever you find yourself during the day, right? And that that and bring those skills that you just named so beautifully, you know, those skills of curiosity and reaching out that you can bring those wherever you are, at home, at work, in the community. But it turns out to be the best investment in your future. What about midlife? What are the challenges that you've seen there? And what can individuals who are in midlife do to overcome those relationship challenges? Probably the biggest challenge is shutting down, is being so beleaguered by all your responsibilities that you don't take time to connect with other people. You don't take time to care for yourself and to have fun, which is a part of self-care. So I would say, make that a priority. Plan that out just the way you and your wife do. Plan it out every week. Let other things fit in around that. Make those the first things you plan and let the other things come in when there's time for them. That's that idea from Stephen Covey, the big rocks, right? Plan your big rocks first and then let the sand of life fill in on those rocks. Let's say it's someone who's, you know, retirement. So- late 60s, early 70s, what's something that they should be turning towards when it comes to their their relationships? The people in our study who were the happiest in retirement replaced their work relationships with new relationships in retirement. So I would say that finding that group of friends, finding those causes you love and volunteering for them, finding those clubs you want to join do those things, make those things happen, be active about it, because that's likely 
to build a kind of bedrock of social connection that's going to keep you happy when you're no longer seeing people all day at work. I saw that in the life of my own grandfather. He he passed away in 2015. He was almost 101, wow. but he retired from the Forest Service. I forgot how old he was. You know, he was like in his 60s. But then he lived like, you know, another 40 years and he had a flourishing life and it was spent socializing. He was involved with uh, conservation groups, the Rotary Club. He traveled a lot. He did Meals on Wheels. Even in his, wow. he was in his 90s, he was visiting, he's visiting, yes. delivering, you know, Meals on Wheels to other 90-year-olds who were, couldn't get around. And yeah. I, I mean, I think that did a lot for his longevity and he, he had a flourishing life all the way up pretty much up to the end. Yeah. And that's, that's the recipe, staying engaged in the world. It sounds like he was very engaged. Yeah. Uh, with all kinds of people, with all kinds of activities. It's staying engaged that matters hugely for your happiness and your health when you retire. Well, Robert, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, the book has a website, thegoodlifebook.com. And you can also go to our study website. It's www.adultdevelopmentstudy.org. Adult Development Study, all one word, dot ORG. Fantastic. Robert Waldinger, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. My guest today was Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's the author of the book, The Good Life. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about the Harvard Study of Adult Development at adultdevelopmentstudy.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash happiness, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter at artofmanliness.com slash newsletter. There's a daily option, a weekly digest as well. You'll get our updates. It's for free. Check it out. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you to not only listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.